Well, excited to be with you and starting a new series. We're uh, going to be working through the book of Ruth over the next uh, four weeks. And with that in mind, I had a question and John kind of led up on it is what would be the, the book that you would write if you were to write a book? Anybody hear that question and be like, uh, I have no idea. We talked about a book on overeating. Uh, and so I don't know what your title would. What I would suggest is as a pastor, so often there's a lot of tug and pull to like make sure you write a book at some point in your career. And I, I kind of have a feeling with that. I'm like, you know, I feel like you only should write things that are inadequately addressed. Anybody else feel like that? You're like, and if you can't find a book on a topic, then maybe consider writing it. But there's not a shortage of books out there. I remember uh, a number of years back, a friend of mine, his name's Craig Steiner. Uh, he's uh, was the director of a youth ministry at a, a large church in Chicago, and he was thinking through kind of what his tug would be towards writing, and he kept seeing and reading all these different books and kind of gimmicky books on how to create a youth ministry that effectively reaches people. And so he wrote a book, and the title of this book has always stuck with me. It's called it this. It's called Moving Forward by Looking Back. Moving forward by looking back, and I loved it because what he was calling people to do is he said, you know what, it's not about more gimmicks and uh, approaches, it's more about going back to what does God's word say about reaching the lost. And even in this post-Christian culture, he's saying, oh man, there's so much packed in there about effectively ministering to people. And I really resonated with me, and I was thinking about that title, and you might see it already even in your notes, I was like, well, that's kind of our story in the book of Ruth. The story of a, a woman, we're first introduced to a woman by the name of Naomi, and her story begins by going back. I was thinking about both physically for her, she goes back to Bethlehem, kind of the area that she was born and raised in, and then also goes back spiritually. And I was thinking about as it relates to us, so often fresh new beginnings start by going back. Whether it's going back to somewhere physically, I don't know, I'm not saying everybody needs to move back to your hometown, but whether it's physically or maybe more often spiritually going back to some of the things that were at your root, the foundation maybe of your faith. Maybe it was that, that excitement of when you first received Christ. Maybe it was the adventure of trying to get tough spiritual questions answered. Maybe it was the passion that you had of sharing your faith when you first embraced Christ. I don't know what that was for you, but this morning we're going to talk about moving forward by moving back. Let me pray and hopefully this will make more sense as we work through it. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time together this morning and a chance to be in your word and how it's so relevant and applicable still today. We ask that you'd speak to us directly, that your spirit would be moving in this room even this morning and there would be a, uh, a lesson or something valuable that everyone in this room walks away with somewhere where your spirit directly meets them where they're at. We invite that now in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so if you wouldn't mind, you can start turning with me to the book of Ruth, whether it's in a physical Bible or uh, on uh, your phone or device, whatever works best for you. It's right after the book of uh, Judges. We're in Ruth chapter 1 this morning, and while you're flipping there, just a little bit of background, just real briefly, a couple things. This is one of only two Old Testament books with a female name, so the book of Ruth, and the other book in the Old Testament is... Nice. All right. Some, uh, there we go. A couple things about Ruth. The name Ruth actually means friendship. 
which is kind of cool. The name Ruth, it was actually my grandmother's name, which I, who I loved it dearly. Jewish tradition tells us that Samuel wrote this book. We're not for sure because there's no self-identification in the book, so we're not positive of the author, but it's a beautiful little love story. And maybe you've been brought up with kind of a version of this, maybe in the flannel graph or whatnot, but I think there's even a lot more hidden behind the scenes that we're going to get to explore in this series. Starting in chapter 1, The first section I've titled, Bad Choices and Devastating Outcomes. We'll see if you see it in the text. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites, from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died. So the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. All right, we'll stop there for a moment. Now, a lot going on. You might not catch all that's happening there, but let me walk through that briefly with you. The first thing is a kind of the date stamp is given in this. It says, the days when the judges ruled. What we know about that time period is really was marked with not kind of, it's kind of the, the wild west, if you will. Judges 21, 25 tells us during that period, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We've pointed to that before in the text, uh, other series in the past, but really that's the introduction that we have is that's the period where God wasn't really an active or they weren't actively worshiping God during that season of Israel's history. We're introduced to a, a man by the name of Elimelech and his family, his wife Naomi, and his two sons, Malon and Chilion. And they were from, what town was it say that they're from? Who sees it there in the text? Bethlehem. We've all heard of uh, Bethlehem. They're from the town of Bethlehem, but it's kind of ironic because it says in those days when they ruled, it says there was a famine in the land, which is a little bit weird because Bethlehem, the name itself means house of bread, which is kind of ironic if you think about it. Famine in the house of bread. It's like no groceries in Costco. Like, so they're, they're there. And uh, that was kind of a joke. They're there and there's a famine and it makes you have to ask the question like is the famine related to their disobedience and wandering from God? First kind of assessing that so often as we read through the Old Testament they were directly attached but the lesson to be learned in our life as you think about that is sometimes God uses hardship and trial as a disciplinary measure to get our attention, maybe to keep us to protected from maybe even worse calamity down the roads, but sometimes it's unrelated. But what I would suggest is when we are in the middle of a difficult time, it's a perfect time to ask the question, is there any sin in my life? Is there anything that needs to be addressed or confronted? It's a wonderful, healthy pause when you're going through trial. Are you tracking with me? So it's not guaranteed from God. Sometimes it's just the, uh, uh, the outcome of living in a fallen world. But sometimes it is God getting our attention. In this case, we see that the father Elimelech 
makes the choice to do what? Instead of waiting it out in Bethlehem, where does it say that he goes? He goes to Moab. His Moabites would have been a, a people group in that time. And not necessarily, you're like, how is this a, a bad decision? Not every move is a bad decision. But in this case, he was going into, in that time, a perennial enemy of the Israelites were the Moabites. So he's taking his little family, wife and two sons, and moving to an area that was directly forbidden by God. This was a people group that lived on the, kind of on the east side of the, the Dead Sea. I love that uh, every single one of these stories, you can still go and visit these sites today. In fact, Adrian and I, here's us in the Dead Sea. There's a fun picture uh, floating because of the high salt content. The next picture is on the other side of the Dead Sea is where Moab was related. Here's the background of where Moab came from. Moab is talked about in Genesis 19.37 where Lot fathered a man by the name of Moab. Yes, Lot fathered. And it, he came though from an incestuous relationship with his oldest daughter. So not a very great foundation for kind of a family line or kind of a building a, a community. And ever from its very uh, start, Moabites were known for their perversion and even the worship of false gods. They had one false god by the name of Chumash, uh, not the park, but Chumash, the, the, the god, was actually known for uh, demanding the sacrifice of children. You're like, well, that's, that's kind of messed up. So this is a, a people group. And so... This man is taking his family and moving to this area with one thing in mind. How do I provide for my family? That's not necessarily a bad thing, but I would propose as we're looking for ways to apply this, that it's an age-old mistake for men to think that their one responsibility as a husband and father is to provide for someone's material needs. Are you tracking with me? The flaw that so often happens is you forget that attached to our list of responsibilities in the headship of a family is not just to provide for the physical needs, but to also be the spiritual leader in that household. This is where his failing was. He didn't do a good job of leading his family spiritually. He took them out of the covering of God's graces in Israel to a land that was forbidden. And he just didn't just take them for a short period of time. How long does it say that they were there? Ten years. Ten years absent of church, absent of spiritual influence, absence of an environment of praise. And that is what I would suggest was the biggest mistake. And I wanted to take a quick moment in our service. I know this might be a little bit awkward. I wanted to have the men that are the married men in our church, just for a moment, I'm not going to make you do anything. Just stand up for a second. Just stand up. I wanted to take a second to remind us of this calling on each one of our lives. And I'm preaching to myself right now as much as I am to you. You're calling to lead your families, your wife, and if God's blessed you with children, your children in a spiritual direction, setting the course for your family as it relates to the study of God's word, as it relates to creating an environment where they're going to flourish and prosper in their walks with the Lord. 
I wanted to just take a moment while you're standing just to pray over you because this is a serious thing. Lord Jesus, I bring these men, myself included, before you. And we recognize that we need the Holy Spirit's help as it relates to the being the spiritual leaders that you've called us to be. I pray for each man in this room that you would empower them, that you would use them, that you would fill them and give them the boldness and strength to take this responsibility seriously, even in their own lives. That they start with their relationship with you, taking that seriously, and that ripples out into the rest of their families, God. I pray for that for each of us in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You can be seated. So, first mistake, moving to Moab. Second mistake, anybody identify maybe a, a second thing that happened in this course of these first verses that was probably not the best decision and it relates to the sons. What did the sons do? Who did they marry? They married Moabite women. They married Moabite women. In that day and age, here's the problem. It wasn't something that was like, well, it's kind of hinted towards not being such a good idea. It's, it's probably not best to intermarry with somebody outside of this. In fact, Deuteronomy 7.3, tell me if this is direct enough, says, you shall not intermarry with them. Do you think God was pretty specific? He was talking about neighboring countries that didn't follow the Lord. You shall not intermarry with them. You're like, oh, well, that was probably a problem. They were only about six to seven miles away from taking a trip back to Bethlehem where they could have connected and reconnected with people that were following the Lord. But instead they made the decision to say, no, we're going to intermarry with people that don't follow Jesus Christ. The reason I bring that up is for the single folks in the room, and I'm going to call out both men and women to take this seriously. This is a big deal. Who we choose to partner with for our remaining days really can determine not just your life, but even future generations' lives. This was a big deal. So I'm going to create the second awkward moment in the service. And single ladies and men, you thought you got off the hook. I'm going to have you stand for a second. And we're going to pray for you as it relates to this. Ready? All right, stand up. Single ladies, men, anybody in the room. And some of you... This is, this is not saying this is a, everyone has a call to be married. Some people are called to be single. Either way, you get a free prayer out of it. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the single folks in our room and the way that you've blessed and wired them and what you're doing in their lives. I pray you'd give them the, the boldness and the confidence to even trust you as it relates to this. Not just an Old Testament principle, New Testament, that you caution us not to be unequally yoked. God, I pray that you'd empower them, that you give them the boldness to be able to stand firm as it relates to this. We submit this to you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So, two flaws, two shortcomings that didn't end up going well for these folks. We learn a little bit of something here. They, it says something about what happened to the husband. The husband, what did they come to uh, Moab to avoid? Death and starvation. Guess what happened in Moab for these folks? They all still died, right? They, they all still died. Not exactly a real happy or cheery section of scripture, but a couple things. First off, we learn about the, the sons, Malon and Chilion. The first we see the father died, and then the sons. Guess what the name Malon means? Sickly. Guess what the name Chilion means? Dying. So sickly and dying both died with their father. 
who doesn't look up the meaning of those names prior to going with that? But either way, they make that decision. And this, all of this is the outcome. And for the result of this, can you imagine what Naomi's dealing with? Can you imagine what Naomi is dealing with? How difficult that must be. In that culture, there was no system set up or things in place for provision for a, a wife that's been left. And then a lot of times what you do is you put your trust, well, at least I have some sons that'll take care of me. Well, that's shot. This is, if there is ever a moment of rock bottom, this was that moment for Naomi. She's left with her two daughter-in-laws, which is interesting. Who are the, what are their two names? Orpah and Ruth. Here's something for you to take to your next evening party. Orpah, guess who we know with that name? Oprah. And you're like, Scott, you're making a bad joke right now. Here's the reality. She was given that as a birth name, Orpah. People kept getting it wrong so consistently that she changed her name to Oprah. True story. Look it up. The internet says it. And so... <laughs> there's your trivia for the day. So that's one of the daughter-in-laws and the other one, Ruth, that we're going to get to know uh, very well. The name Ruth means uh, friendship and the name Orpah means stubborn. No Oprah jokes right now though. Okay, <laughs> continuing. Verse 6 says how this plays out. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband, then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back my daughters, go your own way for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would they therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Stop there for a moment. Basically what's happened is Naomi's done a little assessment of her surroundings. She's a, kind of a, had that pause, that moment that I think is healthy for many of us where she's looked across the landscape and she said, wait a second, there isn't a future for me here. Things are, this is, this is not good. She's in the field. She starts to hear from uh, other people that are working. Well, back in Jerusalem, or not in Jerusalem, back in Bethlehem, things are, getting better. The Lord has provided. She starts hearing this and she says, I love it. The very first step it says that she got up. So many times that's the, the needed action. Sometimes we just need to get up and move out of situations. She talks on the way to this trip back to her hometown. She talks to her daughters-in-law and tries to explain to them, you don't have a future with me. Things are not good for you. Go back to where you're born. Go back to your families, basically, is what she says. At first, they're like, no way, we're staying with you. 
Then she presents a little bit more logic. She said, even if I had a baby right now, you saw, see this train of thought, you'd have to wait all those years to marry them. So really, there's not a lot of hope attached with me. Kind of a Debbie Downer, if you will, if you think about that. Says that, that she told, basically, she's saying to them, her response, God hates me, I'm leaving, go back to your gods. Is basically in summary, and it's interesting that she's so willing to send them back to their homelands and back it even says to their own gods you're like oh that wasn't exactly the best evangelistic move but so often for us if you think about it our response to pain can either push people from our god or pull them towards our god for her not so great we see that Orpah kissed her mother-in-law and Ruth, it says, clung to her. The two pictures there, kissing is the, the act of saying goodbye. Like, okay, you've made some sense. I'm out of here. That was Orpah's decision. For Ruth, I love that picture. It says that she clung to her. She clung to her. She held on. She's like, I'm not going anywhere. But the lesson I would say if we're trying to grab something from this, and maybe this isn't super profound, but I think it's very relevant for us still today is in order for good to start in your life, bad must end. In order for good to start in your life, bad must end. And you're like, that's why you don't write books, Scott. Uh, in order for good to, to start, bad must end. It might not sound profound, but so often that's exactly the, the crossroad we have to come to and say, wait a second. If I'm going to stay in this situation, in this environment around the, these people and in this place where I am, man, I'm not going to be able to move forward. So often the moving forward is, comes with the ending of a season somewhere that we weren't supposed to be. The question is, who or what do you need to walk away from? What bad needs to end so that good can start in your life? What bad needs to end in order for good to start in your life? It's a very healthy and helpful conversation and it might need to lead to a closure conversation even in your life. You know what? This just isn't working out. We need to part our ways. Maybe it's a business partnership. Maybe it's an unhealthy relationship. Maybe it's a, a friendship. You know what? This is neither of us are doing well in the middle of this. We need to go our separate ways. So often good can't start until bad comes to a conclusion in our life. Like this idea that she made the decision to move back towards God's presence and God's people. So often we have to be positioned correctly in order for blessing to start. Now take a look in verse 15 how this plays out. And she said, see your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. This is Naomi talking to Ruth. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, now this is very quotable. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do to me as and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Love this picture. Now, so many of us have heard that, that statement or that, that section of scripture read. And uh, anybody ever been to a wedding or something where that's read or something? Or, it's like a, a plaque on someone's wall. Anyone? Okay, confession. Anybody actually have that plaque on your wall at the house? 
Okay, so maybe that didn't work. But anyway, you get the idea here is she makes this resolve, I'm not going anywhere. Despite the effective uh, evangelistic efforts that Naomi had had, uh, God, my God's terrible, he hates me, go back to your fake gods. Like, uh, despite that, in God's kindness, she still makes the decision saying what? Hey, I want to be not just with you, I want your God to be my God. Most theologians would point to this as her conversion moment where she's making the choice to wander away from Chemosh and towards Jehovah. This is a big deal. This is a crossroads in her life. And I love what happens here is it was verbalized. It was verbalized. It was, it was spoken about so often for us that's the starting point of a new beginning in our life is when we verbalize to others our commitment to do something. The reason why is this. The reason why is this. Is because when you verbalize something, that automatically creates accountability. Are you tracking with me? When you actually say to somebody, hey, this is where we're going. This is what we're doing. All of a sudden you have, once you've, once you've verbalized it, well, that, then what? Then the person can say, hey... You said we were going here. You said we were doing this. And it's a healthy thing if the commitment that you're making is God-honoring and God-pleasing. For us, some of us need a little bit more resolve in our life and a little bit more put the stake in the ground. This is what we're doing and where we're headed. Man, such a beautiful moment in this crossroads of this story with Ruth and Naomi. So we see that the, the power of verbalizing is, uh, even if you think about it as the gospel message, confess with your mouth is what we're called to do. Now, verse 19, we'll see how this story plays itself out. It says, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. We'll start there on unpack that a little bit first they arrive in Bethlehem and what's the question that all the ladies because she remember she's from here they're all saying is this Naomi probably to reflect the hard life she's been living and the toll that it's taken on her appearance Stephanie was sharing with me uh, this week uh, uh, some pictures as uh, toll on appearances. Maybe you guys have seen some of these before and af after. This was Lincoln before he started his presidency and at the conclusion of his presidency. Do you see some of the, the impact of that? H how, about, how about this Bush II, 2001 versus 2008? It's uh, some hard new lines that come from that. The third one, maybe you guys have seen this one already. Obama, you're like, whoa, that's, that's taking a toll. Some of us, the same, look in the mirror every morning and are just like, wow, I see the toll that life is having. For this, it's been 10 years. And the people recognize her, but they're like, wow, you look a little bit different. They refer to her as Naomi. She corrects them. And why do you think she corrects them? She says, no, my name is Mara. 
You see, Naomi, the name actually means pleasant. Means pleasant. Now, her new name, Mara, means bitter. Literally, that's bitter. Like she's become, because of how she's responded to life's happening, she's become bitter and angry and cranky. She's kind of like Job in the, what she's experienced, but more like his wife in her response, right? A little bit, a little bit cranky. All of a sudden, she's blaming God for everything. Notice there's no mention of her knucklehead husband that took her to this land of Moab to die. You know, like you're like, why does everybody want to blame God for everything? But here, she's so unaware that in her story, this is, this is just the beginning, She's about to turn a corner and see God's provision. She's arriving just in time for the harvest. So often, here's the mistake that we make, and this is a lesson that we can learn. We come to conclusions about our future in either the beginning of the story or in the middle of the story or three chapter, three, four sin, instead of waiting to see how things are going to play out. Waiting to see how things are going to play out. We have a God of redirected endings, right? We have a God of redirected endings. And for us, the call for us is to just sit back when you're in the middle of the trial, when you're in the middle of the turmoil, sit back, enjoy some popcorn, and wait to see how the story's going to end. Are you tracking with me? This last week, uh, uh, a week ago Friday, uh, I met with our tax person. Anybody else have that fun in the last uh, couple months here? Uh, not sure where those, uh, those uh, rebates are at, but uh, this year I had kind of an estimate. Anybody do this where you have kind of a guesstimate as to what you think you're going to owe? And, the, and then when you sit down and it's like, oh, it's three times what I thought I was going to be. And you're like, oh, and then, then you do the quick glance on your checking account and you see how much is in there and you're like, oh, that's super, that amount <laughs> supersedes this amount. That's bad. Kegel spending freeze. You know, like this was a complete stop. Uh, now we're, we're, we're clock checking on showers. You know, I mean? like everything's like, and, and the Kegel household has gotten a little bit intense. Uh, but here, here's the fun side of it. And this, this isn't a woes me. You'll, you'll get where this is going. So last week, and it's, it's cool in these moments how God works. Last week, we come back from church and sweet little Sienna, our youngest, she comes back. She's got a little bag and she's like, Scott, she's like, dad, not Scott, dad. She's like, dad, she's like, dad, I, I got a bunch of bread from the bread table for our week ahead. And I was like, I was like, I was like, all right. So you know how we give away Panera bread leftovers at the end here. And so she's got this bag of bread. I'm like, sweet. And uh, it was kind of cool because I kind of had this, this moment of like, yeah, God does. I, I need to be reminded God's, God's got, it, got this taken care of. He, he provides the bread. And so she, we, we have this moment. And I was like, oh, that was kind of a cool. There's, there's a little illustration for you. Then I come into work on Tuesday morning. We're building this wall faster than Trump, but we're building this, this wall out here. And uh, sorry, uh, we're building, building this wall. And the guy that's working on it, unconnected to the church, big guy, he, I had talked to him the week before, just chatting it up with him. He's going on a, a fishing trip over the weekend. Comes to me, he's like, Scott, he shows me the pictures. I said, well, how did it go? Did you catch some fish? He's not, he said, not only did I catch some fish, I caught a 200 pound yellow fin tuna. He showed me a picture of this and, uh, and it's just this massive fish. And he's like, and Scott, I brought you back some fish. 
like it's awesome. So he brings me out this like freezer packed bags of fish. He's like, one can go straight into the, into the fridge. One can go in the freezer for later. And I was thinking about this for a moment. First off, that was a little weird. Uh, but second off, man, we ate this fish. It was so ridiculously good. It was like manna from heaven. Like it was, it was, and I was thinking about it. I was thinking about it. And you, you think about the God's provision. I'm like, I was reflecting on this and I was talking about it with the kids. I'm like, well, he provided the, the bread and the fishes. The loaves and the fishes. It's a, and I was like, in 45 years of my life, no one has ever given me a slab of fish. You know, I've gotten some nice gifts over there. No one's handed me a slab of, of fish. And it was a wonderful reminder. My daughter, Alexa, is just like, Dad, you can make a sermon illustration out of anything. And I was like, <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, well, I kind of took that as a compliment. And I'm like, well, well maybe. I'm, I was like, maybe. Maybe that's just hopefully for us setting the, the tone for our household to maybe start to see God's areas of provision in our life. To slow down enough to say like, oh, wait a second. He's, he's actually taking care of me. Look how he's, how he's faithful to this. We're, we're eating a Panera bread and, and fresh fish this week. Like what, what in the world for some of us, we need that same exact reminder that Naomi needed to hear, slow down, be patient. The end of the story isn't written yet. The end of the story isn't written yet. God has a plan. He's got, for those that cling to him, those that, that draw close to him, he's got a plan for us. In the meantime, though, here's another fun part. We get to choose our own script. You're like, Scott, what do you, what do you mean by that, choose your own script? Think about this for a moment. We're staying with kind of the, the movie theme, if, we, if you will. Think about this. It, it, choosing your own script. You might not get to choose your story. You might not get to choose your setting. You might not get to choose the characters that you're surrounded with. Amen? So, but here's the piece that we do get to choose on a moment by moment. We choose our own script. How we respond to the things that happen to us. And think about this. Who wants a boring story with no deterrence or de deference from your, your game plan? This is, this is how, like, who would watch a movie about somebody? Let's stay with this. Who would watch a movie about so somebody that their story, everything goes exactly as planned? You know, yeah, ever since I was seven, I had this thing, I had this mapped out. I knew exactly what was next. And this is, oh, oh that's real, not, not exciting, right? That, that, that's a little bit boring, in fact. And what are we drawn to? We're drawn to the like, whoa, they didn't see that coming. How's Chuck Norris going to respond to that? There, there we got that in. Uh, how are we going to respond? I was listening to uh, Levi, Levi Lusco this last week. I love what he says. He says, what would Braveheart be without the death of his wife? Just a man in a dress. And you think about that, it's true. It's so, it's so true. So much of how life plays out is how we choose to respond to it how we choose to respond to it. The, the reminders just taken from this week, the things that we need to pull from this. Maybe we need to hear exactly what Naomi needed to hear right then. Your stories, it's not over. The best is yet to come. She's about, about to see God's provision in these next upcoming chapters like none 
other. She's about to be connected to Ruth, who ends up being in the family lineage of Jesus Christ. Like, what in the world? God hasn't forgotten about her. God hasn't forgotten about you here this morning. Maybe, though, on the other side, on the front side of his provision and his care and the the new chapters in your story, maybe there's some necessary endings, though. Maybe there's some necessary endings, some things that you need to like, hey, I need to, I need to step away from this because that's not healthy for me. Maybe there's some necessary endings on the front side of his provision, or maybe there's some fresh new commitments where you verbalize to people that can hold you accountable. Hey, this is the direction we're going. This is what we're doing. I need you to hold me accountable to this. So often, those are some of the key components to living out this. Man, the the next chapter is going to get so much better, though. Thank God for his word this morning. Let me pray as we wrap up. God, I thank you that you are a God of new beginnings, that you are concerned about the details that we're concerned about. God, I pray that you'd help us in these different trust exercises that we've been given to see what we're trusting in. We're going to follow Elimelech and kind of go solve our own issues and take things into our own hands. Or are we going to open our hands to you and trusting you, God, with our next chapters? I pray for the person here this morning that's maybe been stuck in a rut and maybe needs some, some endings of some seasons in order for good to start in their life. I pray that you give them the confidence, the boldness, the strength that only your spirit can allow to do that. We thank you and praise you for your faithfulness, the way that you can take things that seem beyond repair, do something beautiful with them. We praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. My prayer is this week that you experience some uh, loaves and fishes moments that you recognize that the best is yet to come for those that are in Jesus Christ. And so hopefully that's a blessing to you today. A couple things just as you're leaving. Uh, first off, there's something specific we can be praying for you about. We have a couple volunteers up front here available. Otherwise, have a fantastic Sunday. God bless you.